Well, you'll notice that uh, the room's set up a little bit differently. If you're a guest with us, what we do on the fourth Sunday of every month is we have a healing prayer service. So we have a little less music in the beginning of the service. And right after the, the message, which I'm about to give, uh, we'll have an opportunity for people to come forward and receive prayer for all kinds of things, for um, physical healing, emotional healing, sometimes just as a response to, to what they've heard God said or a prompting of the Spirit. Um, it's not anything weird. It's just that we believe that we serve a God who hears and answers prayer. Um, what I would offer to you is when this time starts, you can feel free to come up if you want, or you can just simply receive the space. So there's very few times in our life, I think, when we really just have a space when beautiful music is playing live and we're in a, a, a place of worship that's designed and a, a time carved out for us to be in the presence of God. So I encourage you to use that space when it comes, uh, however is meaningful to you, all right? Well, I want to dive right in this message series that we've been uh, going through together in the book of Exodus. This, e this evening, we're just going to pick the story up uh, right where we left off, the story of Moses. And if you are just getting into this, maybe you're visiting or uh, have been gone a few weeks, let me just try and get us up to speed in a nutshell. Uh, where we're at is roughly, very roughly, 1,500 years-ish uh, before the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. Moses, who of course you've probably heard of, he is this great leader of Israel, the one who led them out, uh, the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt and into the, uh, the wilderness wanderings. This mighty leader is going through a tough time in his life. He's not yet become that mighty leader. And Moses is having, you might call it a, uh, a vocational crisis or uh, a, a low spot in his life. That's being mildly nice. Um, he'd already escaped death when he was an infant. Pharaoh wanted all infant Hebrew boys killed, and he managed to escape death at that time. Uh, but since then, he's grown up, he's killed an Egyptian, and now he's wanted for murder from Pharaoh. So he settles on the run for his life. He settles in Midian, where he's taken in by this guy, Jethro, who happens to be a priest, uh, a pagan priest, not a priest of Yahweh. And there he meets Jethro, he meets his seven daughters, and he gets to marry one of these daughters named Zipporah. What a great name. And uh, they have a son and name him Gershom. So Moses is now uh, out running for his life. He's settled in this foreign land called Midian, and he's now starting a family of his own. He's been rejected already by the people of his heritage, the Hebrew people, and the people he grew up with, the Egyptian people, and now he's found his family in a foreign people, the Midianites. At the end of chapter 2, the narrator tells us that despite what is happening to Moses, despite all the junk he's going through, God is actually on the move. And God has been paying attention to Moses, and he's been paying attention to the plight of the Israelites. He has heard their cries for help uh, because they've been enslaved in Egypt. He has seen their oppression. He's remembered his covenant with them, and he's taken notice of them. And now the stage is set, and you... Get on the edge of your seat because you, you think, okay, now is the time that God is going to do something awesome, amazing. He's going to rescue. And that's where we enter the story. Would you stand with me, please, as we read Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. 
And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up to that good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Ammonite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Father, thank you that you are a God who sees Elroy that you know, uh, not just from a distance, but intimately, uh, what it is we're going through as a people and as individuals. Thank you that you are the God who shows up in burning bushes and in incarnate Christ and in our brothers and sisters and in the world around us. Thank you that you are the God who intervenes. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would intervene in our minds, and our hearts, as we submit ourselves to your word this evening. Don't let us leave here until you've changed us to be more like Christ, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. So the way that verse, or chapter 2 ends with this God seeing, and, and he hears the cry, and you know, he, he remembers his covenant, he's about ready to act. I mean, you're, you think that you'd be ready for uh, God to do some mighty thing. I was thinking if this was a Hollywood blockbuster, you'd got to have some kind of explosion that real men wouldn't look at. They would just walk away, and you'd have this massive outpouring of power, uh, maybe a, a military strike of shock and awe, where like a bunch of angels come over and like laser thunderbolt the egyptian people or something like that but what actually happens is such a a letdown if you're looking for action it's just mundane moses shepherding the flock of jethro his father-in-law now just a few observations about this opening line first of all moses at this point in the story has embraced the age-old profession of his ancestors abraham isaac and jacob he's just a shepherd He's in pastoral work. That's my brother. Uh, to Egyptians now, shepherding was a, uh, a vocation that was despised. It was work for servants. So Moses, having grown up in this aristocratic Egyptian house, he's really stooped here if he ever had hopes of being uh, going back to the Egyptian uh, hierarchy. What we see here in this first line is that Moses has accepted his identity as a shepherd. He has been working on this identity crisis he's had, and he's given up his hopes of returning to Egypt, if he ever had those hopes. He's given up his Egyptian worldview. The man who would end up shepherding God's people 
cut his teeth shepherding livestock. The second observation is that Moses was pasturing his father-in-law's flock, not his own flock. Moses is not only a shepherd, but he's just a lowly shepherd, a man without his own flock, a man without his own possessions. The point is, he is no one especially affluent, no one especially influential. And third, Moses has taken his flock on a long journey. Maybe it was an effort to find good grazing land in the heat of summer, uh, or maybe it was just a stirring in his soul to travel west. But for whatever reason, he ends up at Mount Horeb, which is described as the Mount of God. Now, I think that Moses had no idea that Mount Horeb was the Mount of God when he got there. The person who tells us Mount Horeb was the Mount of God is the narrator, who's telling us the story after it happened. So I think what happens is Moses is traveling uh, west. He ends up at this mountain where the burning bush scene happens. And because he has this encounter with God, that mountain becomes the mountain of God. You see what I'm saying? It's the encounter with God that makes it the, uh, the mountain of God. Now, up to this point in the story, uh, Moses is just an ordinary man doing an ordinary job way out in the wilderness, far away from anywhere anyone would expect anything spectacular to happen. In fact, Horeb simply means desolate place. And then it happens. Something catches the eye of Moses in a bush a common bush, as common as in our high desert areas as a tumbleweed or a sagebrush, he sees a bush on fire. Two common things, bush and fire, and yet this bush was not being consumed by the fire. Moses, as a shepherd, would have spent many a nights out in the wilderness constructing little fires made out of whatever wooden things he could find. I'm sure he's burned plenty of these types of common bushes in his day, and he knows that they don't last very long. They burn up. But this one is not burning up. So he says to himself, self, I don't know what he says, I've got to turn aside. I've got to go check this marvelous sight out. And then he hears a voice. Now, the narrator back in verse 2 of chapter 3 tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. But here it says that the Lord, that's Yahweh himself, talked to Moses. So I don't know if you're confused. That's confusing. What is it? Is it an angel of the Lord talking to Moses, or is it God himself talking to Moses? It's it's a mystery. Uh, Like so many theophanies or appearances of God in the Bible, uh, pre-Jesus, it's just a little bit weird. Three guys come for dinner to to Abraham's house. I mean, is is that, are they angels? Is it the Trinity? Is it a pre-incarnate? I mean, there's there's all kinds of mysteries surrounding these appearances of God. But here's a few clues. First of all, the word angel, malak in Hebrew, uh, simply means messenger. Uh, And we know that the prophets often would say things like, thus says the Lord, and then the prophet would speak as if God was talking, right? So it could be that this is an angel speaking for God, That would be kind of normal in Old Testament writing. But there's also a case to be made for this being an actual encounter with God himself. In verse 5, God tells Moses not to come any closer, to take his sandals off because this is holy ground, right? Angels don't do stuff like that. In fact, sometimes in Scripture, people make mistakes and they, uh, they are encountered by an angel and they try and worship the angel. And the angels are always, always, always quick to say, get up. I'm not God. You don't worship me. 
Humans don't worship angels, right? They don't take off their shoes. They don't consider it holy ground. Angels are not God. They work for God. Angels are only authoritative because of the person who sent them, which is God, right? So what we have here is this mysterious encounter with God. He uses a bush on fire that is not consumed, I think, as a visual malek or messenger. It's a representation that catches uh, Moses' eye, and then God himself talks to Moses. Now, just pause for a minute and consider how crazy this is. I mean, if you're, if you're hearing this for the first time, you're like, duh, it does sound crazy. This doesn't happen. And if you had the benefit or maybe sometimes the curse of growing up in Sunday school and hearing this one over and over again, it, it has become kind of normal, hasn't it? But think how weird this is. First of all, notice who uh, or, or where Moses is not. Moses is not in a temple. He's not at a special holy site. He's not worshiping or praying, or doing anything remotely spiritual, right? Moses is shepherding his animals far away from home at a desolate place. And few things are as ordinary as bushes in the wilderness. I mean, come on, they're all over the place. Even fire is an ordinary, everyday element, especially for a person in Moses' day and age, before central heating and uh, before uh, electric ranges. I mean, you've got to cook on fire, you're heated. With, fire's normal. Fire, bushes everywhere. And God uses here the common to make an uncommon appearance. Now, second, notice the ordinary man that this happens to. Moses, at this point, is no priest. At this point in the story, he's no prophet. He's no one of political or spiritual significance. In fact, Moses is a wanted murder, murderer. Thank you, uh, Greg, for pointing that out in our small group the other day. And yet God takes the initiative to reveal himself to a guy like Moses. He calls to him, Moses, Moses, which in this culture, saying the name twice is a term, a, a, a method of endearment. So you would say someone's name twice as a way of communicating friendship or acceptance, a, a good friend or a son or a daughter. Uh, uh, Jesus says in uh, uh, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I want? Insinuating that you, you think you're buddy-buddy with me, that you're a, a follower of mine, but you don't do what I say. Or on the cross where Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, like the Shabbatani, in Aramaic, uh, Abba, Abba, Father, Father. He says it twice as a son to this endearing father. So here he, he says, Moses, Moses, in a way that is saying, uh, I am with you. I'm not just God, like, up here and, and, and trying to scare you. But I've been watching you. I like you. You're my kind of guy. Moses responded with the reply of a servant, the humble, here I am, Lord. Here I am. We think of maybe Samuel and Eli, something like that. And as we've just seen, God tells Moses not to come any closer. He tells him to remove his shoes. This is holy ground. Not because it's a special spot on the planet, but because God is there. And where God is, that's holy ground. God establishes a relationship with Moses. He says, I am the God of your father. And I'm also the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. To me, this is an amazing revelation. Um, uh, 
I, my, my father is adopted, and I remember I, I was an adult when he found his biological mother. And to be able to meet with her, she's a wonderful, wonderful lady, by the way, and uh, to be able to meet with her and to hear and to fill in the gaps of the family history, so precious to my dad, and really to me too, because I get to now know my roots uh, through that side of the family, roots I didn't know I had before. I guess I'm from Oaxaca. Um, there you go. But uh, it, here Moses um, realizes, as he's struggling with his identity, am I a Hebrew? Am I an Egyptian? Am I now a Midianite? Who on earth am I? Raised at his mother's breast until about three and a half years old, then torn from that relationship, put in an Egyptian school. I wonder if he still had some of those, those songs that his mother sang to him about Yahweh, about God, about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, rolling around in his head. It's the stories that shaped Moses. And soon, Moses would be part of this story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the story of God. For those of you out there who are first-generation disciples of Jesus, this is a story that shapes us. Uh, Hear your name twice repeated by the God who loves you and says to you, I am the God of your distant relatives of faith. I am the God of Peter and James and John and Paul, the God of David, the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Through Christ and faith in him, you and I are grafted into the story. We have a lineage. Through Jesus' child, I want to think that that, that God is saying, I've always been your God. You are part of my covenant people. Moses is hit by the power of this word, this revelation. This is no generic spiritual encounter. This is a theophany, a a meeting with the God of the universe, the creator and covenant uh, keeper. This is what uh, the Celtic Christians would call a thin place, a a tear in the fabric that separates heaven and earth, where, where God is revealed in a unique way. Moses may have heard about Yahweh from his parents, In an old song when he was nursed up to three and a half, he may have heard about it in a textbook as maybe a false god that the Egyptian schools taught about. He may have heard uh, of Yahweh in some uh, way, shape, or form from uh, Jethro, the priest of Midian. But God had always been a a song or, or someone in a textbook or someone he had heard about. But for the first time, Moses has a personal relationship with God. For those of you that have a personal relationship with God, do you remember that first time that that Jesus, that God became real to you, that it it ceased to be the faith of maybe your parents or the faith that the the pastors seem to have or or the faith that that the church seemed to have and it became your own? Do you remember that moment? When God became a person to you and you became his, that's what's going on with Moses here, that is a burning bush experience. That is a thin place in our lives. Hold on to that memory. Well, the Lord then began to explain that he had seen the plight of his people in Egypt. He identified with their suffering. He heard their cry. He he was going to act, and the mission of God and Moses' place in it 
is going to have to wait till next week. Okay, sorry, cliffhanger. Okay, you have to, you have to wait till next week for that. But for now, I want to dive a little bit deeper into this burning bush experience. Even among people who are not Christian or Jewish, uh, you could look up burning bush experience, or you could hear it as a coll- colloquial saying in a secular world. I mean, a burning bush experience uh, simply means to some people uh, an epiphany, a spiritual awakening, an insightful moment, right? But what we're talking about in this burning bush experience is an encounter with the living God. Wouldn't we all love an encounter with the living God? How? What do we have to do to have a burning bush experience? Well, that's actually part of the good news of this passage. What was Moses doing when he got his burning bush experience? How did he make it happen you should write a book, Seven Ways to Have a Burning Bush Experience. No. No, Moses was just doing ordinary stuff. In our terms, Moses was just having a day at the office, right? He was just doing what he does every day. He was in his normal routine. He was busy about his vocation. He didn't go anywhere special. In fact, he was in a desolate place, a place many in his day, of the wilderness, would have considered actually unholy and antisocial. A scary place where demons and things might hang out. Ten years ago, Corey and I traveled to Europe, and we visited all kinds of holy sites. We walked up the steps uh, of Mars Hill in Athens where uh, Paul would have traced. I actually got down and touched it, thinking, well, I know this has been worn a lot since Paul, but his feet probably walked on this part. We read Acts 17. It was magical. We were in Rome, and we crawled down in this cell where supposedly uh, Peter was held before he was crucified upside down in Rome. Uh, We visited one of the earliest church buildings in Rome, uh, one of the first buildings designed to hold a church when they moved out of house churches. As a history nerd, it just made biblical history and church history come uh, come alive for me to touch some of these places. But I remember journaling when I got home about my disappointment overall with that trip. Not with the trip. I mean, good food. Oh my gosh, it was a great trip. But my disappointment spiritually with that trip because going, before I headed out on that trip, I thought, Lord, I know you're going to meet me in a burning bush kind of way. I'm spending all this money going all this distance to go to these special sites. And you know what? He didn't meet me in an aha, burning bush, fireworks kind of way. But something better happened. When I got home, not before, when I got home and I was reflecting on my experience, I had a sense that the Lord was saying to me, Chris, I didn't give you a burning bush experience because I want you to know I am just as available here as I am in Rome or Athens or Jerusalem or any other place. I'm just as available in your routines, in your daily life. That is a priceless message for me. God is present all around us. So the question then for us is not, where is God, as if we had to go somewhere or do something special and sacred to find him. That's not the question. I think the question is, where is God, in the sense of, he's everywhere, where is he? Like, we should expect to see him in our routines, in our daily life, at church and outside the church, because he is there. 
The question should be, where is God? Just like, where is Waldo on this page? I know that stinking guy is in there. He's in his stripy suit. You know, God is, is around us all the time. That's the question. Where is God today? Where is God at work? Where is God at home? Where's God at church? We should ask that question. That's a fair question. We ought to ask that question big time. Ruth Haley Barton writes about Moses' encounter in the, with a burning bush and points out a detail. When I read this a few years ago, this detail blew my mind because I just glossed over it. And she says, or, or, or she points out that the way the text goes, Moses sees the burning bush, then he decides to turn aside and look at the burning bush, and then God spoke to him. This is it in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called him. It's as if, would God have called him if Moses walked by the bush? Or said, that's cool, I'm moving on, I've got sheep to herd, I've got stuff to do. It seems to imply that only when Moses turned aside, then God spoke to him. What if God is present in the mundane routines of your day and wants to speak to you, wants to reveal himself to you, but is waiting for you to turn aside? Okay, let me rephrase that in the way I actually think it is. God is present in the mundane routines of your day and wants to speak to you. Wants to reveal himself to you, but is waiting for you and me to turn aside. What does it mean to turn aside? For Moses, it meant literally taking time out of his work to turn aside, to see, investigate this wonderful sight. He took the time to ponder and engage in his surroundings. So for us, turning aside might just mean paying closer attention. Paying closer attention, for example, to the beauty of this place we get to call home. If you've ever driven the North Cascades Highway, uh, you know that on that drive, you pass waterfalls and lakes, these beautiful rock formations and ancient forests. Uh, some of you, Brandon, I know has hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. Tommy, I know, has ridden his bike over that thing. And they've experienced that in a way that I have not, going 70 ish over that over that road because i want to get to winthrop or wherever i'm going right now even going 70 i can tell you oh th those waterfalls are cool and one time i stopped at lake diablo and you know what i mean it's like you pull off you do the the tourist thing but what would it look like to turn aside and and, and to ponder oh my goodness in my anxiety the god who made this magnificent place who was god over all of this, who thought this up and sustains it, I bet you that God would be powerful enough to handle my little stressor, right? That's what turning aside can do for us. A couple years ago, I was feeling uh, crushed by, you know, just general stress and the bearing weight of circumstances that were out of my control, pretty much run-of-the-mill day for every single person, right? Uh, my natural tendency when I feel uh, under extra pressure is to just work harder, right? To just go at it harder, uh, but a friend of mine encouraged me to turn aside. And so this friend and I drove up uh, Mount Baker Highway, and we went to Nooksack Falls, and we said, okay, let's take two hours and just uh, hike our own ways, have our time with God, meet back up at the car, and then we'll go have lunch together and kind of discuss what God says. So I think, great, okay. So with all the weight of this to-do list and things going on in my life, 
I, I hike, I found this nook of a rock with moss on it. It's perfect. And the falls are crashing over here. It's beautiful. And uh, the sun's kind of breaking through the clouds in and out. And I do all the stuff you're supposed to do. Silence and solitude. And uh, my mind is distracted. So I'm doing my breathing exercises. You know, all the stuff that I teach you guys about and small group and all that. And I'm doing it all, right? And it's not working. I just feel anxious and like, I, gosh, I wish I was getting busy right now doing stuff. So the two hours is almost up. Now I'm really frustrated because now I've totally wasted this. God, you didn't even talk to me. And right before I'm about ready to go, uh, I don't even see a rainbow. In the midst of the falls is coming up, I see basically it's kind of a sheet. It wasn't even a cool rainbow. A sheet, you know, like the prism, the light, just the... But it was enough to get me to think of a rainbow. And the promise of God's faithfulness and commitment to save rather than destroy, uh, rather than to destroy. That after the flood, Moses put a bow. You know, only in recent history has the rainbow made a connotation to kind of ooey-gooey love. That was a bow of war. And God puts a bow that kills things, and he aims it where? Up at heaven where he resides. And what he's saying is, I am so committed to you, my people, that I am willing, if the covenant is broken, to take my own life. Not yours. I will not destroy this earth again like that. And I begin to think, in just that moment as I'm leaving that rock, oh, thank you, God, for the reminder that you are so committed to the goodness and loving kindness of your people, the people that I'm stressed about, maybe my own stuff, you are big enough to handle this crap I'm going through. You, and I, I, the, the, the stuff didn't go away, but I, I, felt, I felt like God could handle it, that I didn't have to handle it all. And you see, by turning aside, by, by just paying attention, God can speak to us. We can have a burning bush type of experience. Now, did I know all that stuff theologically before? Sure, I think I read that in a book somewhere. In fact, Jesus' storybook Bible talks about that very same concept. I didn't even need my Old Testament class to know it. Dang it, wasted money. But, uh, but I would not have known it in the same way if I had not a- turned aside and heard the voice saying, Chris, Chris, term of endearment, I see you, and I have heard your cries, and I am more than sufficient for you. That, that takes turning aside. Turning aside in a world uh, that God rules means paying attention wherever you are. Sometimes you need to get out of your routine and go up to Nooksack Falls or go on a hike or do whatever you got to do. Go to Iona (laughs) like we did last year. That was really good for my soul. But oftentimes, God is, he's everywhere. And turning aside can just be paying attention in your workplace, in your family, all of those things. And one of the ways you might consider uh, doing this, note takers and overachievers, get your pencils out. Here are three things. Three questions to ask yourself, simple questions before you go to bed. One is, where did I see God's grace today? Where did I see God's grace today? You could ask yourself that question. Because I guarantee you, if you think about it, if you turn aside, you'll notice, even if you didn't notice it in the moment, you'll recognize God's grace throughout your day. Where did I see God's grace today? Second, where did I miss an opportunity to turn aside? So if in your memorize, you're going through that first question and you recognize a place of God's grace 
and you didn't turn aside in the moment, but you only, only caught it at the end of the day, you know, one of the things you could do is, is write down, you know, I missed it. I missed it today, which leads us to the third question. Where is God inviting me to look for him tomorrow? Where is God inviting me to look for him tomorrow? Where did God's grace uh, happen in my life today? Where did I miss an opportunity to turn aside? Where might I look for him tomorrow? A lot of us run the same circles almost every day, same types of routines. Okay? All these experiences, uh, by the way, should be tested. I mean, the reason I talked about nature and paying attention in your routine is because that's less common in evangelical circles than saying, read your Bible and pray. But read your Bible and pray. <laughs> you know, these experiences we have need to be lined up with Scripture. They need to be talked about in the community of faith. Because we can get off on our own little tangents by just, if we just take experience by itself. Now, if turning aside is so crucial, why isn't it easier what are these roadblocks we have to paying attention and turning aside to this God of the universe who's everywhere and wants to reveal himself to you? First of all, I, I just think, to state the obvious, there is a serious set of cultural roadblocks to turning aside with God. You know, in many cultures today, uh, the spiritual realm is just, it's talked about, it's, it's obvious, good or bad. If you go to Southeast Asia today and you walk into a restaurant or to uh, a home, you will see a shrine set up. Uh, incense burning, uh, offerings set out to attract the right spirits to defend you against the wrong spirits. Now, I, I don't agree with that theology, but what I do see is, is, a, is a people that are at least acknowledging that there is a spiritual realm, okay? Uh, India, same way, just walk down the street and see how many shrines and temples and uh, uh, overt spiritual um, recognition there is. Now, contrast that Take a travel to Western Europe, and what vestiges of cathedrals are left are usually turned into museums to help pay the bills. They might get a small gathering of people to worship. We worshiped at St. Paul's Cathedral in London last summer. Of this massive church, uh, and I'm guessing there's probably 300 people there, 400 maybe. Um, uh, there had to be half of us were tourists, if not more, because... We just wanted a place to worship on that Sunday. Uh, the building, the, heat, the heat's paid because of people that come in and give donations because the, you can get a docent-led tour there. We live in a world uh, that tells us things happen because of cause and effect. There's no room for the transcendent powers, let alone a concept of providence of God. Those things, um, turning aside, it's just not supported in our culture. And yet, we who follow Jesus confess faith in a God who not only got the world started, but actively intervenes in it today. This reality makes it all the more important for us to be intentional about turning aside. Which, by the way, you are doing right now because you came to a place of worship. Because you have been singing songs and praying prayers, praying that I'll wrap this up really quickly, which I will. But you are participating in something, in an encounter with God. Now, Sophia read earlier um, from John 16, in which Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to dwell in each believer. That means if you have confessed your faith in Jesus, 
been baptized, then you have the spirit of the living Christ dwelling within you. You are a living, breathing, burning bush. You are a living, breathing, burning bush. If you're sitting next to a disciple of Jesus, you are sitting next to a living, breathing, burning bush. The Spirit of Christ is dwelling in the baptized person sitting next to you. Holy ground. And we don't take it seriously most of the time because of a second obstacle to turning aside. Busyness. Busyness. We're distracted people. We overschedule ourselves and wonder why we don't ever experience God. And this to me points to a bigger problem. One I think uh, is main, the main reason why we're so busy is because, not totally going out here, but I'm a preacher, I get to do that. I think <laughs> that we so often make ourselves busy because we subconsciously are ashamed to be around God. We don't genuinely think he loves us as much as we do. We're constantly living in, a, in a, uh, a state of guilt and shame. And we just keep on at the treadmill, on the spinning gerbil wheel, whatever it is. And we say, I love you, God. I'll show up when I can. I don't want to think about it too deeply or too hard because you're going to reveal stuff. And I don't even want to deal with that. These problems of culture and problems of distractedness and business are a case of not knowing how deeply loved by God you are and I am in the first place. And that's where I'd like to close with a story that describes in brief just how precious you are to God. There's a story uh, about some shepherds just like the story of Moses and the burning bush. Uh, this story involves shepherds who are going out among their ordinary business, and they're just ordinary men. They weren't too special. In fact, I don't even know their names. And yet these shepherds had a supernatural encounter with an angel of the Lord. They were serenaded by a multitude of angels who told them that God is so in love with them and in love with this world he created that he is sending a savior to them to rescue the world. These shepherds were in charge of flocks, and yet they turned aside. They followed God. They met the God who became flesh and dwelt among us. The God who knows why we are overextended and self-distracted. The God who knows intimately yours and my addictive habits and the shame that comes with them over and over, day after day and week after week. And sometimes if we think we're really good, we go a month, or two months and fall again, that God, that Savior knows those things about us. These shepherds turned aside and worshipped the one who would die for them and who would die for you and would die for the world around us. Hear the good news then. That right now where you sit, you are at a thin place. Heaven and earth Jesus and you intersecting right now. And the question, as always, is will you turn aside? Will you recognize him? We're going to transition now to a time of healing prayer. This is a thin place. 
This is a thin place. This is an opportunity for you to respond, uh, asking God for physical healing, emotional healing, to help, uh, help you see him. Lord, I know you're there. I believe it theologically. I just don't experience it. You can come forward for prayer. If someone comes forward and you'd like to come and support them, lay hands on them, feel free to do that. And there's going to be some incredible, beautiful music up here. Uh, Thank you, worship team. If you'd like to just stay where you are uh, in this thin place, in this moment, respond to God how you would. And invite Charles Hansen forward uh, to come. uh, Man, a kneeling bench up here, and I'll be at the other one. Thank you, guys.